I'm Brett Samuels, bringing you the latest episode of Open Mic Marketing. As well as being your host, I'm also Managing Director of Law Creative, a multi-award winning integrated marketing agency. This podcast is coming to you from our brand new Hearts Podcast Studio. So this is our third episode, and each time on Open Mic Marketing, we introduce you to an inspirational guest, as well as discussing a hot marketing topic. In this episode, Law's Client Services Director, Josh Kitchenside, will be discussing the fundamentals of great client service and sharing his insights from an agency career spanning nearly 20 years. So if you're looking to deliver commercially effective campaigns, successful brand work and truly integrated communications that have the desired impact on your target audience, you're in the right place. And if you would like to catch up with episodes one and two, either to hear them for the first time or remind yourself of some of the insightful content, simply visit your favorite podcast provider and search for Open Mic Marketing. But first, I'm delighted to welcome Morgan Howell, Morgan is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, an ex-ad agency owner, publisher, music aficionado, and possibly one of very few three-year-olds to have witnessed a live performance by the Beatles. Morgan has made a career of creating super-sized limited edition replicas of famous 45 RPM vinyl records. Have you always had a a passion for music? I think so, but it's really interesting because I just kind of like tuned into it slightly more. I've got two children that are growing up now, 22 and and 24, and you go through a whole period when you have kids, when you haven't got time to listen to music or anything. And I think there comes a time when you rediscover it if you're in that position. So music was a big part of my life, and actually the reason that I landed up producing the art that I do, which are sort of um, facsimiles, hand-painted facsimiles of 45 RPM records is because I realised how important those objects were to my adult life. I've been trying to get into the Royal Academy for years as an artist, using that as an escape from the advertising world that I was in. My dad's a fine artist, a watercolour painter, and I could always paint and sculpt and do all that kind of stuff. I remember one year sculpting a horse's head, Um, which I thought was pretty good and I put that into the Royal Academy and it got rejected again and I went along to the summer show and um, I think it must have been the year of the horses heads and lots of the Royal Academians had put horses heads in as well and I remember walking around thinking well mine's at least as good as a couple of these but when I got home I just thought well I've never ridden a horse this art hasn't actually it might be all right to look at but it hasn't come out of me and I think that's the extra degree of authenticity if you want to be an artist you have to have a subject matter that means something to you it's not about the commercial side of it in fact the commercial side will only come if there's an integrity in the work so I thought back about what's made me the adult that I am When I was 13 or 14, I was in this rubbish band. Mods was the thing, you know, Quadrophenia was just about to come out. Um, There was a resurgence of The Who and I was into The Jam. And then I think in 79, the two-tone thing swept across the country. And I remember one of my big sisters just sort of saying, oh, if you're into all this stuff, you know, why don't you ever listen to some of my old 45s? And showed me, you know, this Stax and Tamla Motown stuff. 
there would have been you know the Yardbirds and the Small Faces and all of these bands that were never they weren't played on the radio at the time so what that experience did is it gave me confidence and instead of just being a skinny spotty kid that couldn't really find his place I had a little bit of swagger about me and that's never really left but this is why I immediately knew that was a brilliant piece of subject matter and one of the things that I'd done just prior to that was I'd done a giant version of an old Eagle annual that I'd bought to read to the children when they were little and I knew how powerful scale is if you just make something much bigger than it should be or make it much smaller than it should be it changes the way that you look at it a seven inch single is an incredibly powerful object certainly to me and I was only thinking about me at the time I wasn't thinking about the wider impact of it you listen to a a single when you're in those formative years maybe you don't even know what the band looks like there was no internet at the time so you've only got the cover to stare at the song goes into your heart or in your soul and it never leaves you and this was its original packaging so I just thought well it's obvious to try and make a giant version a supersized version of that you ran or have worked in the advertising industry for a long time you Mm. ran a successful ad agency tell me a bit about making that shift from something that you were very passionate about you talked about having a family and having to provide and those things so how did you make really tough really 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 tough it's a tough decision I'm really proud of myself and my family for staying with me because it was hard I mean you know I'd been 25 years in the advertising game we weren't anything like the size of your agency, but I had various partners and we were employing about 14 people, I suppose. And we were doing national TV commercials that were running in the Coronation Street break and on ITV and all that kind of stuff, but still not really making any money. And I think it's just timing. I think if I'd been in the game 10 years earlier, I'd have been luckier. There's no complaints because it did me well for a long time, but I was certainly looking to escape My house was on the line for a big business overdraft. It was getting harder and harder to retain the clients that we had. We had some really nice clients, but, you know, everybody was under pressure. You had to repitch for stuff every year. And I either needed to be much bigger or much smaller. And I just thought, do I really want to do this for the, you know, the next sort of 10 or 15 years? Well, until I can find anything else better, then I'm going to I'm going to be stuck with it. But I think it took four years in transition, where I was doing both things probably badly. Did you ever have doubts that you were making the right decision in moving, kind of transitioning no. out of advertising? If you do the art game right, that you know, the less you do, the more it's worth. So you make things expensive and difficult to buy. I only ever paint a song once. So each original that I paint is is completely unique. And then the additions are very, very small. And there's nothing more powerful in the art world than telling a wealthy person that they can't have something, which I've had to do a few times. It was a complicated to try and work out where exactly how it sat. I was going to ask if there is a lot of trial and error, but I suppose when it's your livelihood, you have to make that process fairly quick because you've got to land on something that's going to pay the bills yeah well I mean I see I was really really lucky one of the guys that worked for me wrote a very good press release which went out to all the music press 
And from an article in Mojo magazine, I was contacted by the BBC and asked to go in and see them. And so that's nine years now I've had my work in the green room at Radio 2 next to Elton John's piano. Also, I was contacted by a guy called Rob Stringer, who's the boss of Sony in New York. He commissioned four pieces from me. I didn't know at the time how uh, incredibly important he'd be to me because he's one of the top guys in the music business. From everything that you've said, Morgan, there sounds like some key moments in that journey that kind of made some quite big decisions for you. That's right. Pricing your work is really, really hard. And I remember when I was first commissioned to paint a piece, um, I didn't know what to charge for an original. I remember thinking, oh, I'll just charge £1,200 or and so that that was the case that that was either 2009 and 2010 or something like that but then when i tried to sort of turn it into a more commercial venture they just weren't selling at all so then you have the dilemma of well is it too expensive is it you know what's going on here so being sort of ballsy i just tripled the price and then they started to sell but again it was still quite slow And then I got involved with Nordoff Robbins, who's the big music charity. So um, the next piece that came up was the original of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. We put this into an auction at Nordoff Robbins and it would have been that there's a famous kind of industry boozy lunch that happens. Don't think it's at the the Dorchester, it's somewhere somewhere fancy hotel in Park Lane. And uh, one of my mates was actually there and he was sending me texts as the auction was going along, saying someone's bid on it, so and so else has bid on it, and in the end, it was Andrew Lloyd Webber, Lord Lloyd Webber, wow. bought it for twenty one thousand pounds. So this ups the ante, doesn't it? So again, this is a, a you know it's a charity auction, so that's not what it's worth, but maybe it's worth half that. So then the pieces went up to £10,000. What happens when you have a big hike on your originals? That effect kind of like trickles down to your other customers. And again, it's this kind of not making very many of them becomes sort of quite important. And it's when you have something that's a, a successful and selling well, it's, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, have a massive addition of that. But that's not how it works. You've got to go the other way. Two questions on that. Tell me how the additions works and how you choose how many additions there are and also how you choose which records to paint second question first i started off painting the songs that meant an awful lot to me thereafter i get commissions they can be all sorts of things i have certain criteria that they have to meet do you ever turn turn yes (laughs) yes i do yeah i've turned quite a few down Sometimes because I've already done them, sometimes because they were never actually a single. So that's one of my rules is it has to be a single. Once I've painted an, an original, and just to, to explain, it's not just a painting, it's an, it's an object. So um, there is a real vinyl disc inside a bag. So it is like a giant version of an actual um, single. The records are made by a model maker for me. They're all bespoke. They've got all the grooves in. They've got all the right bits and pieces. So to be able to make an edition of that, you have to be able to copy photograph all of the elements of it that you need to then replicate it. So the editions are editions of nine for the large pieces. The supersized pieces framed are 81 centimetres across. And the additions that I make, the supersized additions, are exactly the same size. And if you put them next to each other, it's quite difficult to tell. 
you look really closely, you can see the brush strokes. But, but having said that, the additions have got quite a lot of hand finishing and hand painting on them as well. If I was to produce all nine pieces and have them all on the wall in a giant square, it would have this lovely Andy Warhol replication of the same thing, just with minor differences. And I thought that would be a very powerful thing to do so yeah I, I liked that the main additions are additions of nine so I've got full size ones and then I have half size ones that are also additions of nine and again you know when that edition is sold out that's it you know you can buy a paper print which is an eight color g clay unframed for a couple of hundred pounds so that's a bigger edition of 75 but again it's only an edition of 75 a lot of other artists will have editions of 250 that they won't ever sell What's the market like for resale? Do you see a lot of that or do you see people hang on to them and that's kind I of it? Do, I do. In fact, one of my biggest customers came over my work by seeing something on eBay and buying it. He paid a lot more for a print on eBay. And again, it's one of the ones that I think the edition had sold out or something and someone had stuck it on eBay. And he then went on to commission me to paint three originals and bought some other ones as well so yeah that it does happen but it's kind of early days you know it's 10 years and i'm still alive at the moment i'm just happy to be able to make it work i would imagine that whereas some art comes in on trend goes out of trend Mm. and that could be quite quick yeah i would imagine with the work that you do because music is so timeless and people to your point have that deep connection with it oh man yeah it feels to me that it would never go out of fashion for a start when people first see it they don't think of it as art at all they think oh my god my dad had that record yeah um so you're making a direct connection with somebody before they even realize they're looking at a piece of art Morgan, tell our listeners a bit about the process of creating your artwork. What's involved, how long it takes, those types of things. Sure. Well, the first thing is to find the nicest reference to paint. If I'm really lucky, a customer will actually have their treasured single with, you know, their wife's name on it or whatever. That has happened to me a couple of times. But more often than not, it's the beginning of a sort of a quest. So I'll buy as many copies you know, as I can, source from all over the world, and you wait for them all to turn up, and then the customer will do the same, and then we'll look at them and we'll find the ideal copy. And my work is very much a celebration of the kind of history of the object. And um, what draws me to them is the life that they've had. They were enjoyed when you first had them. They were only ever, they were disposable things. You know, you, you, you bought it, you played it, the song went out the charts, it got shoved in a box. Ten years later, that box then gets another box on top of it. And then the whole lot of them go into the shed. They come out, they get sold in a jumble sale. They go to a secondhand record shop some nerd somewhere buys it all of that searching you know with the fingers going along the top tears the top of it as you're putting the record in and out of the sleeve it rips in a certain way someone takes it to a party and writes their name on it because they don't want it to get nicked it gets put in the wrong sleeve all of those things tell a story and I want my painting to evoke that I sort of study what I've got in front of me forensically You know, I've still got all of my eyeglasses from checking proofs when I was in the advertising game. And it's really interesting. So I try and paint it in the order that it was printed. 
So a lot of things were very poorly silk screened. If it's by the Beatles or the Stones or whatever, they would have been printed and reprinted. Those silk screens, you know, millions of them were pressed. So the typeface is squidged out of shape. The screens have moved around, so they're out of register. So how would your business be if it was in a time where there was no internet and technology? Would it be impossible? No, it would just take longer, wouldn't it? Probably be a bit more fun. (laughs) I probably wouldn't have painted quite so many. The world worked fine. In terms of your art, how long does a piece take and how many have you done? I was pestered by the BBC. Have you done anything by ABBA? How about doing something by ABBA? The Pink Pound's quite strong at the moment. Why don't you do it? And in the end, I said, why do you keep asking me about ABBA? And they said, right, OK, yeah, we've got Agneta from ABBA doing her first interview in 25 years. She's coming into BBC Radio 2. And I said, when and they said four days i painted dancing queen by abba in four days ordinarily longer and a lot of that's down to research so i generally say if i'm actually from start to finish it's two weeks but sometimes i'm doing other stuff i've got some of the jigsaw but not the rest of it do you run those concurrently or do you just do you focus on one and then on to the next one or do you have multiple kind of running at the same time sometimes so there's a bit of a process that i have to go through so the sleeve of the bag is made out of canvas i cut that out of a roll of canvas like a tailor would cut a suit so i need to know how the original bag was glued together where the glue flaps are and all the rest of it so i do that first and i might do a few of those at a time and then they're soaked and left to dry on a line if you ordinarily paint onto canvas the canvas is stretched over a frame so by soaking the canvas and and drying it it goes tight over a frame if you do that when it's not in a frame you can use that to um, to give you modeling and texture to the bag so quite often I will have a few of those going just depends on time pressures if I've got one customer that's commissioned a few at a time then I'll do a few at a time. Sometimes it's quite nice to have a break from one and move on to another one. The question about how many have I painted, I haven't actually tallied them all up, but it's probably into the 130s and 140, something like that. And they're not all in the book, sometimes because they weren't photographed properly, sometimes, well, for various different reasons, I didn't like them or whatever, or just usually because there wasn't a good enough copy photograph of them, or or maybe there were a few that were too similar. So I generally do about 10 or 12 a year. So you see, again, it's not so many, which again makes it more interesting. And I'm an old man now, you know, I'm 55. I want to take my time and enjoy the process, which I do. This is obviously a predominantly a marketing podcast so we have clients who are up in competition against other people is there is there anyone else in your line of business who does something similar or is it is it totally unique to you Do you know I'm, I'm i'm very blessed with that because i've had two people well i mean like i should give them permission but as a guy that makes giant cassettes who's i've met through people over in los angeles who's a um, ex sort of film prop guy and also someone makes giant badges, pin badges. There's a few people that have started doing something similar. There's a guy that does album covers. I don't do albums. And there's a few people that have done some stuff that's a little bit comfortably too close to me. But do you know what? For a start, they get jumped on by all my customers and fans and, and stuff saying, oh, you know, you're ripping. Well, actually, it's just a subject matter. But also, it's a big compliment, isn't it? And it just elevates your work. Do you feel that some of that 
emotional connection might be lost moving to more digital formats. So when I was growing up, I, I, I kind of got the back end of cassettes. Yeah. Moved into CDs, which I loved going to sort of our price and picking up CDs and kind of having that physical. Now it's all downloaded. Do you feel some of that's lost or is it in the, the No, it's, the I, track? I, I don't I don't think so. And I, I, I think as the experience of listening to music becomes more and more immersive with virtual reality or whatever, and what are they going to show? They're going to show the music in its original form, aren't they? they're going to show the root of it you can't tell me there's anything as cool as sort of david bowie on stage in 1975 and that will always be the case and actually the further away that you get from the the big bang of this pop the more power it has it doesn't diminish it 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 increases um having said that very good friend of mine and, and customer has just produced this cool as anything flight case coffee table that you stick all your old cds in because now we stream and we download but we're not quite ready to chuck all our thousands of pounds worth of cds in yet so they're all on show underneath bulletproof glass and you stick your beer on there and your feet up and look through with your mates watching the footy so morgan as well as successfully selling your art in galleries you've also now got a book called Morgan Howell at 45 rpm tell us what's in it and what that process was like I moved agents and now I'm working with a guy called Dominic Moen who very well connected ex-journalist now working in the PR world 10 years ago when I tried to get a publishing deal it would have been um, vanity publishing I think is the terminology this time round, we actually got a book deal but then lockdown happened so the, the premise of the book was just to show my art in as, as nice a way as we possibly can, a lovely big format coffee table book with a little bit of story. But the challenge was really to try and get some really engaging conversations to go with each record. That would have been a bit of a tall order if it wasn't for the fact that the world was locked down and everyone was sitting on their hands and bored out of their minds. So... For example, I did meet Andrew Lloyd Webber at a drunken photographic session once and sort of walked up to him and um, had a really nice conversation with him. But, you know, we asked him to write about the book and he did. He talked about how Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones is one of the most powerful pieces of music of all music, not just pop music. And when it comes from somebody like that, who incidentally is one of the biggest private art collectors in the world, we got Piers Morgan to write in there. We got Sean Ryder. Sean Ryder spoke about the memories of sitting on the beach with his nan cooking sausages and onions. He wrote about the first single that he had that he hadn't stolen, (laughs) which was Life on Mars. That's how much it meant to him. He didn't actually steal it. He actually paid for it. So there's all sorts of stories in there, and some of them are quite unexpected. You know, as I said, it's a worldwide thing, and it means so much to all sorts of people. So we have a sort of a smattering of personalities um, in the book, but we've also got this lovely man who lost his wife and these memories of her boogieing to All Right Now by Free. So that was the premise of the book. Dominic was trying to get his contacts, and I was trying to get my contacts, And we were both really struggling to get someone to write the foreword. I really wanted somebody from the art world, not from the music world. So I was trying to get that side and and Dominic was trying to get someone 
with a bit more sort of reach that would be interesting. And on the same day, I received a letter from Sir Peter Blake. Peter Blake is the godfather of British pop art. And to have a handwritten letter from him on his famous uh, notepaper with his signature, famous signature written at the bottom, kind of stopped me in my tracks. And then um, the same day, we got copy from Andrew Marr. BBC political journalist who's actually just doing a series on art and um, you know he suffered a stroke a few years ago and turned back to art I think he'd done it as a child to try and help sort his brain out but also with his coordination and all the, and all the rest of it although he's a political journalist he's actually a social historian and I think that's what interested him in the project and again his take and his copy it was so lovely to read. And I just sort of said, yeah, what he said. <laughs> that's, that's good. No one can put it quite so well. So Morgan, tell the listeners, firstly, where people can see your work. And then secondly, kind of what's next for you and, and Supersize Art. Well, the best place to see the work, I suppose. I mean, I'm very active on, on social media and more than anything else is my Instagram. So I'm at Supersize Art on Instagram. And you can see whatever I'm working on that day. The next exhibition, I'm not sure if I'm going to get one in before the book launch. Book launch is going to be mid-October, I think. There'll be a book launch and an exhibition in London, followed by the same thing in Manchester. And then stateside the following year, we'll be doing South by Southwest, which is in March, which is in Austin. And then we'll be going to Los Angeles and having a book launch there. So that's what we'll be doing in the, in the States. Hopefully we'll come back and maybe the, what we normally do if I go to um, the States is then go to Dublin because the Americans love the Irish and then maybe Europe again. So, you know, nothing is planned because none of us can plan anything. It's, it's no point trying to book stuff at the moment. So, yeah, the best thing to do is, is to do that. Look at my Instagram. Sounds good. And just two last questions yep. from me, Morgan. So what advice would you give someone looking to start out in the arts industry? And then second, what advice would you give to someone who is in a job but has a passion that they would like to pursue and would hope to turn that into a some sort of career? Right. So the art thing, this is a really good recommendation. I mean, I speak to lots of kids about art and, you know, some of them are are serious about trying to want to make a career out of it. It's a very hard thing to make a career out of. However, this is what you do. You go online to the Royal Academy and you submit work. And every year when you're rejected, you go along to the Royal Academy summer exhibition, you see what everybody else has done. And you learn from that and you think, oh, right, okay. there's lots of this sort of stuff. There's lots of that sort of stuff. Ultimately, I found for for me that it was an idea that got me into the Royal Academy. Lots of people can paint and draw and sculpt. So I think if you do that before the next summer exhibition and you make a promise to yourself that you're going to do that every year, eventually you'll get in. And on the way, you'll get to meet all sorts of fascinating people and then your your story, maybe it will run parallel with what you're doing at the moment. Obviously, there's lots of um, open entry art competitions and some people haven't got the confidence to do it. I think it costs you 25 quid. If you can't afford 25 quid, just do it anyway. Just paint and draw and do stuff. Show it to people. Try and do a little bit every day. All right, and with your other question... It's really hard because what happens in real life 
is you have commitments that mean that you can't do what you want. And I'm not going to say, oh, just leave your job, you know, just follow your heart. No, that's just not going to work. I think just expose yourself to as much of whatever it is you're passionate about. Have a little bit of a think if there's any possibility that you can make a commercial living out of something that you're interested in. Think about your life. Think very, very carefully about decisions that you're going to make. I think we've all got an internal voice that we carry around. I think if you're desperately unhappy with what it is that you're doing and the life that you have, you will search out something else. All of us are good at something. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at that. Everyone has got something that they're good at, even if it's like listening to other people, encouraging other people to do stuff. We've all got something that drives us. But I would say you will find your time. It took me until my mid 40s until I finally had the opportunity to do something that I knew that was going to pay for the rest of my life. But even then, my God, was it a struggle. There were times when I was just thinking, oh, Christ, what on earth have I done? I would say that in everybody's life, um, no matter how sort of hopeless it might seem at the moment, carry on doing what you're doing, support your family, look after yourself, but don't ever let go of it because that time will come. Really, really great advice. Morgan, I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so, so much. Oh, absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been very nice. Thanks for having me. So that was Morgan Howe. I hope you enjoyed that. Wasn't that fascinating? Next up, I'm joined by Client Services Director, Josh Kitchenside. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brett. Now, Josh is Client Services Director at Law Creative and has been for the past five years. I've actually known Josh for the past 14 years, and I suppose Josh is probably one of very few people that you know, when you look back on your career has has been an ever present. And so I'm sure in many years to come, Josh, you and I will be sat round a table somewhere recounting various stories from Law Creative and our collective past. Absolutely. And isn't it terrifying how quickly time flies? We're talking today about client services and it's a, a fundamental part of agency life and We are in the service industry. It's about keeping our clients happy and and offering a great service to differentiate ourselves from the other 20,000 agencies in the UK. So let's start with an easy one. What do you believe it takes to deliver great client service? Yeah, an easy question, probably a very long answer, but I'll, I'll try and keep it short and to the point. So I think there's a lot of obvious things in there such as managing expectations, perfect project management from beginning to end, exceeding expectations all the time you can, anticipating change, which is always inevitable. But actually, I think the trick of what makes great client service lay somewhere a little bit less obvious. So maybe things like in a meeting, reading between the lines and actually understanding the subcontext of what's maybe being said by body language or unspoken words and maybe in someone's tone, You can really pick up on if a client is happy or nervous or unsure of something. And I think it takes somebody quite skilled to be able to get to the bottom of that and therefore make sure that the client satisfaction levels are always there. And then when I talk about managing expectations, I think that goes beyond budget and deadlines. 
for example, what if you were to present a concept to a client and the agency's worked on that concept is really clear on what we're trying to get over to us because we've gone on that journey of creativity, but you show it to the client in an illustration form and they see all these wonderful things on the page and they think they get a vision of how that's going to come to life. But that vision might be really different to what's actually achievable in the budget or the timing or what limitations you have to work with. So I think there's lots of different areas to set expectations that are beyond this is your deadline and this is your budget. So there's lots to consider. Maybe even more than that is actually knowing your client's business inside out. Obviously, as you know, we at Law like to think about ourselves as a client partner agency. And I think to really be a partner to a client and really be part of their teams means understanding where and how your clients operate. Who are their target audiences? Who are they trying to reach? And what's happening in their industry, like at a higher level, what trends are forecast for the next five years or more? You know, have an opinion. You know, you do need to understand all that, but you need to show them and demonstrate you understand that. But I think also maybe finally a, a genuine passion, which probably sounds really obvious, but genuinely care about your clients and what they achieve. And when they ask you to do something, kind of interrogate it. You know, why do you want to do that? Is it for all the right reasons that meets their overarching strategies so you can really help them? When talking about delivering excellent client service, there are a number of different facets, I would, would say, definitely. Josh, I think that was a really great answer. There's a lot to, to unpack there. There are a lot of nuances, aren't there, when it comes to, to client services? And I think trying to pick up on some of those signs, particularly when you're presenting things, is, is super important. And I think there's always a lot going on in those meetings, aren't there? There's a lot of different characters in there. There's a lot of different objectives. People have different ones. And trying to work that out as you're going through is, is a really important skill to have. And I think also around managing expectations as well is really important because you all have to be on the same page when you're presenting work, showing work, talking about deadlines. So I think some really key skills there. You've obviously done client services throughout your career at various levels and now you know right at the top in terms of client services director. What are the main things that you've learned? Oh, so much over the years. So I think it's probably about 20 years dare I say doing this now and many of the things I think that you learn you you kind of learn the hard way you learn through a mistake or a, a difficult lesson learned I think one of the biggest things over the last few years has really been the fact that you are only really as strong as the sum of your parts or the strength of your weakest link if that makes sense and I think it's really therefore what it takes to build lead and nurture a team it's not an easy task, but it's probably one of the most fundamental ones that I think is of the biggest importance. And then with that comes a real blend of people. You know, you look at your team at law or you look at your team in an agency. And in fact, you could look at your team anyway. It doesn't need to be in an agency. It probably goes way wider than an agency. But you get such a blend of people and you get their expertise and you get their passion and their dedication. Or sometimes, you know, you can get the opposite. You can get people who are burned out or they're nervous about something you know there's lots of different things that you'll get you'll get tenacity and intelligence and creativity and I think it's a bit of a, a science and an art how to bring all that together to benefit your client and to benefit what the agency is trying to do so what have I learned I think that happy customers are driven by that happy team so it, it does come from me I, I believe from inside the agency and what we offer and how we operate and deliver to our clients so I think it's really up to us to set that tone and like I say, it's not easy. And I think with that comes a lot of responsibility. It's a good point around mistakes, because I think making mistakes is the, the best way to learn. But of course, it's a real fine line always, isn't it, between 
making mistakes to the point where the client is really unhappy and there's the potential there to be fired. So how do you make those mistakes in an environment that minimizes the risk to everyone involved? It's like the million dollar question, isn't it? It depends on what that mistake is. So much earlier on in the career, a mistake would be all about production. So, you know, has this been proofread perfectly? There's not going to be an error that's going to cost the client or the agency reputation or money. And it's it's that type of thing. But then as you work your way up in the client services world or in that role, a mistake can be far less obvious. So I think think anybody who does do a job well probably has learned somewhere you know if you're going to be honest I think you have learned somewhere along the lines by a mistake in fact one of the mistakes I believe I made and got caught out on happened some years ago when I kind of thought maybe I knew it all so it wasn't a mistake in terms of production or monetary that was the kind of thing you worried about all the time anyway so you never make that type of mistake but I kind of rocked up to a, a meeting on a new client hadn't done my research at the time massively quite a lot of senior clients in that meeting and got caught out. And of course, after that point, going back with that client, it's really difficult to then earn that trust or be seen as somebody who can bring value when you didn't really, I think it was a bit of a pivotal moment for me, really. I kind of massively learned from that. And I also, like I said, I'm not precious about it. So when trying to help and nurture and lead a team, I'll tell the team that, you know, that's something I've learned from. And I think that openness with them gives them a gateway to they can learn from that lesson without making the mistake themselves and hopefully trust me that bit more because I'm open about it. So Yeah, and I think we all make mistakes, don't we? And, and that's just a part of human nature until the robots take over and, and everything's <laughs> defect free. People will always make mistakes. And to your earlier point, I think if you build enough goodwill and trust with the client... And clients can accept mistakes because I think we all make mistakes. But if that hasn't been built up, then those errors can be quite costly, can't they? Yeah, and I think that that is a fantastic point and another nuance to how difficult this is, because you're right. That mistake or lesson learned can come in any direction at any time. So it can be at the beginning, as per my example, or exactly like you say, if you do absolutely everything, you have this amazing relationship with the client an error can be made you can get past that as a team together but um i think it's just then at that point it's anticipating things that you can't always see not the obvious so so we spoke at the start of this around you know it's about providing great service it's about understanding their business understanding them as as humans how have you found that during the pandemic because obviously we like to see our clients we like to spend time with them we like to be in their businesses but we haven't been able to do that a lot of our clients are international we haven't been able to fly we haven't been able to attend face-to-face meetings what's your advice around maintaining and building client relationships during the pandemic I guess before going on to the advice, Brett, is the fact that you're right, it has been difficult. And again, I don't know that there's a science to it as such, but I think for me, it is demonstrating an openness and an empathy in every communication. One thing I do always say, and this has become much more difficult to do, but I kind of say, call, don't email, FaceTime, don't call, and as soon as we can meet, don't FaceTime. So basically kind of always try and be, as you said, present with the team and engaged with them in real time. And I think it's in the absence of that, which has been difficult, is finding that tone when there are more emails or there are more online meetings. And, you know, you can go onto a client meeting, and you think, OK, we'll, we'll FaceTime. That way we can read body language. We can be as close as we can be to being in a room with that client. And you get on the call and the clients turn their camera off or the, they haven't got the camera or something technology wise isn't isn't working for whatever reason. And I think it's then 
still possible but more difficult to read that room and be able to not talk over someone, talk over a client, listen and hear what they're saying and empathise with what they're going through and then demonstrate the usual open friendliness, expert, you know, so if you, st- you know, same kind of rules apply in this instance. If you go, and again, back to my lesson, but you go along to that meeting and you're prepared and you have got the expert advice and you have that confidence, then you can help lead that meeting in any which way. And even just the fact that we all know it's going to be better when we be back in person, say that to the clients. You know, I really look forward to when we can get back together again. I think we all know it will make the world a difference and try and be their trusted advisor, I guess. It's trying to get that blend, isn't it, between adding value to every touch point that you have, but also not necessarily saying things because you feel you have to say them. When you have these calls, you want to have a presence in them, but you also need to listen as well. And I think that's a really important skill to have, particularly as a a client services person. Yes, clients want you to have an opinion. Yes, you have to add value, but also you have to be a really good listener and really understand some of those nuances that we were talking about earlier. That's exactly what I was going to say. When you when you talk about the listening like that, and maybe that is one of the more challenging things right now because you try and hear that subtext or a silence can speak a lot of words, yeah, but not so clearly on a call yeah. as in person. So yeah, that, that is more difficult. But I think then if you are in client services and you genuinely care about what you're trying to achieve for the agency and for your client and you're authentic in that because you care, then actually that goes a long way as well because you can then confidently fill those gaps as and when is the right time to do so. And if you care that much, you almost can't go wrong. Yeah, agree. So I'm not going to say unprecedented times, but tell me some things that you've been proud of from a client services perspective during the pandemic. I think that law has done some really fantastic stuff during this period and as best we can and I think marketing isn't always the obvious place to try and save the day that's difficult even when it was difficult for the agency because you certainly as an agency with a lot of leisure-based clients with that industry so hard hit that means the agency could be hit as well and so the fact that the agency has been there for the clients throughout whatever has been required is amazing I think for Nuffield Health obviously one of our larger clients and actually Heroes very much themselves throughout the pandemic in terms of supporting the NHS and taking on that mantra, which is huge. Nuffield Health obviously did a heroic job with their hospital business by helping out the NHS. But of course, the other side of their business being the 113 gyms and leisure centres across the UK, when it came to reminding the nation about the importance of their health and the fact that the gyms are still there. And, you know, people last year discovered exercising outside. They discovered that there is life outside the gym if you want to keep fit. But I think it was very much about reminding people the variety of ways to keep fit and the importance of having a fitness program and getting back to that for all the right reasons. We came up proactively with a a great idea for Nuffield Health in terms of a film featuring Colin Jackson, the sprint and hurdling athlete. I guess the analogy being... (laughs) <laughs> getting over overcoming big, hurdles over, yep. absolutely overcoming <laughs> hurdles so coming up with that bringing that to life with and for them and helping Nuffield continue to build the healthier nation that they are on a mission to do was good we collaborated with Hampers for Heroes the not-for-profit company who I believe they had anticipated and seen the need that NHS and key workers were struggling as we all know but sending out care packages through the pandemic so we did a lot of free of charge work and branding to to support them because again that's a way that 
we could help somebody helping. And I guess just continuing to deliver such a great team across the agency, so throughout the servicing, all the different disciplines that we offer, keeping people motivated and happy and looking after our own teams was yeah, it's as been, important. It's been interesting, hasn't it? Because you almost we've almost had to do a, a kind of client services piece with our, our teams because... You know, we've had to make sure that they're all right and they're happy and it's functioning well and everyone's on the same page and that's brought its own challenges as as well. Yeah. So And us doing that remotely as well. Yeah. So you get again again taking people out of that being in together environment when you actually have to be more together than you've ever been before is quite difficult. And as as I was saying earlier, I do believe a lot of that outward goodness comes from what you do collectively as a team. So yeah. I agree. I agree. So Let's move on from unprecedented times yep, and, yeah, and back, to, yeah, <laughs> back to client services. So in terms of your career, Josh, you've obviously been doing this for a while. What are some of the things that you've been most proud of during your client services career? That's a nice question. There's quite a lot of things that I am proud of. And I think the biggest thing is actually making it to this point in a career. So I think being client services director for an agency like Law, you know, full service, completely future-led award-winning all the great things about the agency and then being in a senior leadership position is the pinnacle of kind of success for me so that probably is my biggest one being trusted and looking after a great team which we honestly do have here you know in terms of so many people that care and want to achieve the best thing by the agency and the clients is brilliant and I think along the way there of course have been more specific examples like there are particular projects that I've absolutely loved delivering for clients like international work, I think film work in America and China has been incredible and a, you know an amazing opportunity and something I'm really proud of. The fact that some of the work has been award-winning has been incredible, and there's been quite a few pitch leads and wins as well, and that, I think that makes you feel very excited to be part of. And when you do win something like that, it is undoubtedly something you're proud of. Obviously, we've spent a lot of time together over the last 14 years, and I think what always strikes me about you is how much you do care about not only our business but also the client's businesses as well and I think when you have that passion it's hard not to succeed obviously you get the challenges throughout that time but I think between us we've managed to overcome a lot of those and client longevity I think is a really good barometer for that type of thing as well and I'm pleased to say that ours has, has always been very good so that's some of the good things what about some of the challenges Obviously, it's keeping a lot of plates spinning. Um, I think when you start out in account management and kind of project management, that's different to the plates that you're spinning as you work up in a client services role. So for me, I think the most challenging thing is just keeping people happy. So clients and the team. And there's so many different ways of achieving that. You know, if you looked at an example at any given time, there's pressures in this industry all the time. You could have a couple of team members who are working all the hours God sends, pouring their heart and soul into it. And guess what? their clients not happy because the outcome hasn't been what it should have been or that expectation wasn't set at the beginning yes it could be self-perpetuating through that expectation management or it could be you know just on this one occasion something didn't quite fit a lot of what we do is creative and you can have some amazing ideas and they 9.8 times out of 10 they'll work and point two, there might be something difficult in making that work whatever that might be but it's really hard when you've got a team that cares that much if they're then not delivering then you have to you know it's very challenging to try and keep their buoyancy their momentum and overcome that kind of personal disappointment Mm. for someone I think that I remember someone saying to me that if you're in client services and you're 
sensitive, you're in the wrong role because you get it from a lot of angles. You get it from the creatives who've putting pressure to say you've not sold it well enough to the client. You're getting it from the clients who say, you know, they're not happy with certain things. So you you do get it from a a lot of different angles. I think you do, but I think, I don't know, I think if you're not sensitive or you don't have enough empathy for any situation and that would be difficult as well and hopefully if as you said you know I, I am doing a good job then I'm quite sensitive and I think that's because like you said before because I genuinely care but I think it's what you do with that absolutely agree you know you have to be very in tune and you have to pick up on all of the various signals I think it's just that you have to have a fairly tough skin to kind yes, of you pick do. yourself up yeah, from you do. a lot of the things that mm. can can happen and not take yeah I suppose not take it personally yeah. you know if you've done if you can honestly say that you've done your absolute best with the skills that you have and the skills around you and for all the right reasons and actually you should be in a good situation anyway I think that probably is one of the most challenging things I think that saying you can't please all the people all of the time well, I think that's what I have to do. So I think I think that's pretty challenging, really. Yeah, that yeah. saying doesn't yeah, apply. Yeah, 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 it doesn't for apply for this role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked about being the things that you're proud of. We talked about some of the challenges. What do you love most about client service? I think it comes from loving the industry. I genuinely love advertising and marketing and everything about it. I think that comes from being born from two advertising greats. I'm really proud of my parents. My dad was a multi-award winning creative director, and Back in the day, he worked for some of the, you know, the big agencies on the big accounts and he did some fantastic things and, you know, yellow pencils, that, that, that kind of stuff. So really proud of him. And then my mum was a fantastic copywriter, absolutely loved her work. And in fact, throughout my career, I've had the privilege to work with both my parents. So I think it's in my blood. They would probably have said, because I can't draw or write, try account servicing. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually can write, but um, maybe not up to that standard. I love great campaigns and great creative solutions and strategies and pitch deadlines and all that kind of excitement that comes with it. And that's very much client service as well. And I think wrapped around everything that I just mentioned is therefore about relationships and the relationships you have with a client and your team. When it's going good, how can you not love it? And when it's not going so well, for whatever reason, then it's a challenge you've got to overcome. And if you again, if you care, you can do that. One of the reasons I really like what we do is the variety my first job was for a photocopying company selling photocopiers and every day was was the same and it was really tough it was a great grounding in sales and and relationships but it was it was very samey every day and i can honestly say doing this no day is ever the same never it's never boring it can be tough it can be heartbreaking it can be challenging it can be elating but Every day is different, and Absolutely. I think that variety yeah. is is good. Yeah, there have been so many times I've been with you know with one of the team or something, almost like either doubled over in stitches, or you know cannot believe what project we have on, what has to be delivered at this given time, and you just think. Where else does this happen? Only in advertising, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In terms of advice for people who, who maybe are starting out their, their careers in, in client services, how do you become a great accounts person? I mean, I guess I would start by saying that this role and this this industry isn't really for the faint-hearted. How do you become a great accounts person? You listen, as we were speaking about earlier. You genuinely have to care about customer service. So customer service can go right back to shop floor work, for example. 
um, and maybe you say, you know, in your former life of selling copier people, you know, you've got you've got to care about who you're selling to, that the client's happy with what they're getting or the customer's happy with what they're getting. And I think that rule applies to this role very much. So if you, you know, if you want to be successful in it, then put your customer first. Like we were saying earlier, understand your customer, everything about them, everything about their industry, being an expert inside and out. This is harder to learn. So that whole thing about being genuinely passionate or loving what you do, I, I don't know if you can learn that. So probably to be a good account handler, you might not need to have that in such droves, but to be a great one, I think you need to really care. And I think in terms of what you can learn or how you can get better, you need to quickly learn to be commercial um, so again, if you start off when you, you know, you're more junior in account management, a lot of the work is project management. So making sure deliverables are delivered perfectly on time within budget. But then you need to start being able to look at why you're doing what you're doing and challenge why you're doing what you're doing and assess creative work, not because the colours are right or we will like what that picture looks like, but why does it say those words? Why doesn't it say this? And what is the call to action? And how is it going to resonate? with your audience and then be objective led as well as customer focused I think so again why you're doing the work and why it looks a certain way you often hear I think people starting out in this kind of career everyone's got an opinion which is great but it doesn't matter necessarily why you or I like the color yellow or you and I like a headline that looks a certain way or sounds a certain way it's about again the objective of that piece of or that campaign Therefore, the objective is this. So the target audience is that. How do you connect with them, get them to do what you need them to do? So I think that's some really good advice, Josh, and and, and some great points. For me, there are fundamentals that people need to have in, in client service. And I think there are some of the softer skills about being a people person, understanding what's driving people communicating well there's some of the the harder skills you know around being efficient being able to manage a project manage expectations those types of things where I think people need to be as they move up though is more kind of strategically focused and to your point around creative creative is really subjective one thing I might look at and like you might look at and hate and so I think one of the real skills is trying to remove that subjectivity and I think you only can do that by really understanding the client really understanding their objectives really understanding their customers so that you remove that subjectivity because otherwise it can be a really tough gig 100% and I think that that subjectivity can also go back up a level to not just the creative but the marketing plan itself where did that plan come from why are you using the tactics that you're using so often would get People start, I find at the end, we're going to put together a campaign that has whatever channels it has. But why? Why are you looking at those channels? What are you trying to achieve? How do you know that your audience or that segment of your audience are on those channels and that's the right one for the message? So I think it really is about, as you say, you know, as you progress on that path, it is going right up to that strategic level, looking at the whole marketing plan, at the objectives and also all of that, but also what that brand stands for. So if you look at a campaign, does that campaign, does that idea, does that strategy actually complement the brand's positioning and where the brand's headed in their five-year plan? There's a lot that you, you can be looking at there. And I think as well, when you're starting out in client services, you're very focused on project delivery. 
and the danger i think is get a project you work the project you deliver the project you move on to the next one but i think as well is about seeing it in the context of the bigger picture really understanding not just what the objectives of that project are but what are the overall objectives that the the client's trying to achieve yeah absolutely and then also you know you're going to get some people who are beyond fantastic project managers and actually when you've got however many projects running through that you need delivered like that maybe that person doesn't always think in the higher level way that we're talking about but their skill set can't be replaced elsewhere because they are that hot at it. So actually, as a client services director, it's making sure that the team operate together and you lean on the people whose skills complement what's required most at that time. It's a really good point. One of the questions that I always ask in interviews is, is around what is the candidate worst at? And I don't ever try and do that to catch people out. Yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't interview me either. <laughs> <laughs> but I think to your point around building a team, it's about trying to understand what people's strengths and weaknesses are. And we're all good at certain things and not so good at others. And I think Definitely. having that blended approach where you've got people who are amazingly efficient and will look at every single detail. You've got great people who can appreciate creative and what that takes. You've got good strategic people it's hard to find someone who is all of those roles so it's about building a really well-balanced team and I don't think clients or customers would expect one person to do all that anyway and I think it's quite proven over I think we've proven it ourselves at law that when you show a committed team with lots of different skill sets that complement one each other and the way that they work together that's quite infectious and I think that rubs off and I think clients really love that way of working as well completely agree Josh just to finish up what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career in client services so I guess just what I said earlier that it's not for the faint-hearted so you know if you want a career in this area you really want to put the work in you're going to have the time of your life but you are going to have to put the work in. you have to roll your sleeves up you're going to not be precious so you're going to accept and learn from those mistakes that you will make. You're going to need to minimise those mistakes. You're going to need to listen. And something I once told one of the great team members that we have here at Law, and he's now gone on to become one of our most trusted account directors, actually. When he was starting out as part of the team, I think he was very worried about you know, what was going to happen, what should he do if this happens or that happens. And I just said to him, don't overthink everything. If there's no one here to ask, but you still got to deliver, what would you do? And he kind of told me, and I said, well, just get on and do that then. And he said that was almost quite pivotal for him because at that point he took that mantra and just and went with it. I completely noticed the difference and I think a lot of people at the agency did. So I think there's a lot of common sense and being human involved in this. Everything we said applies, the strategy, the thing, all of that. But you don't have to overcomplicate. Sometimes it's just, you know, the simple what you know as a person, what you know as somebody who understands advertising and connecting with people will <laughs> get on and use it. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. And I think my only added point to that would, especially when you're starting out, is try and be a sponge. Try and like take as much advice as you possibly can. There are lots of people around always, you know, in lots of different roles who've probably seen and done it for a long time and to really try and soak that up and ask for advice. And you Absolutely. Know, Definitely. I mean, I think it goes, yeah, not being precious, like I said, because you will hear things you don't want to hear. And you'll sometimes think, oh, God, I wish I'd, I knew that or I thought that or wish I had. But actually, if you do just soak it up, then you'll only get stronger. That can be your idea of your thinking next time around. So, I, yeah, completely agree with that. Brilliant. Josh, 
listen thank you very much for coming on the podcast it's been really fun to talk to you about client services and and hear your advice and and tips so thank you oh you're welcome it's been great to be here thanks for having me so that's it for another episode i hope that it's been insightful and fun to listen to i'm brett samuels this has been the open mic marketing podcast see you next time we